For me, I'm also, I, very, I love being on a team. I love the idea of teamwork and what comes of it. So I always felt so horrible when someone gave me a great pass and I missed the shot. And so I really worked hard to be a good finisher. And then from there, you know, my game took different steps into how I play now. Welcome to the Just Women Sports Podcast, where we talk to the biggest athletes in the world about the untold stories behind their success. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and my guest today is Neka Agumake. Neka Agumake may be the hardest working woman in sports. At Stanford University, Neka led the Cardinal to four consecutive Final Fours before being taken first overall in the WNBA draft. In 2016, Neka won league MVP while leading the Los Angeles Sparks to a WNBA title, hitting the championship clinching shot in the closing seconds of Game 5. That same year, Neka was elected president of the WNBA Players Association. As president, Neka helped the players sign a groundbreaking collective bargaining agreement in early 2020 before leading the league through its historic wobble season. Neka, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to finally get to chat with you. I know. So how are you how are you doing? <laughs> better. I got to say better. Yeah. I feel better now that I'm home and I'm able to find my footing again. Totally. That's fair. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm I've been really looking forward to this conversation because you're an inspiration on so many levels and what you've been able to accomplish on the court and how you've done it is incredible. But then what is equally impressive to me is what you've done off the court. And I want to dive into to all of that. But to get to that, we have to go back to the beginning. You were born and raised in Houston, Texas, and both of your parents are from Nigeria. So tell me what childhood was like. Oh, well, you know, I'm the oldest of four girls and we're very Nigerian American, you know, raised here. But of course, the culture runs through us fully. And a lot of my childhood was just doing things together and then slowly becoming our own our own persons in in the midst of all of that. And sports was introduced into our lives like when I was around 11, like both of my parents, you know, they they raised us with the notion of being multifaceted individuals um, with good morals and values. And we were able to sharpen into individuals that have a, a diverse array of like talents and interests and skills. So, you know, we had piano lessons. You know, I think every kid starts off doing like gymnastics. Right. So, like, we, <laughs> we did gymnastics and then that kind of morphed into like more organized team sports and eventually, you know we all kind of stuck with sports one way or another. For sure. I watched a couple of videos of you and I just like love how close you guys are as a family. And I was like smiling watching. (laughs) I have one sister, you have three, which is pretty incredible. And you being the oldest, you were the first one to get into basketball. So how did did that happen? Certainly the guinea pig of the family, as every first child really is. Exactly. You know, initially I was playing YMCA level of basketball. Okay, so so rec league, yeah. Yeah, like rec league. And like, granted, I wasn't good, but I I was like, I was like the tallest and the most athletic. So like, I thought it was the shit. I was like, yeah, like (laughs) we were out here winning rec league championships and eventually uh, an entire world opened up when my mom's co-worker at school 
talked about AAU. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know how that was even a thing. I thought mm-hmm. that I had reached the pinnacle of sports. <laughs> winning so... winning YMCA championships. You're like, <laughs> right. yeah, we've made it. I mean, what else do I need to do? <laughs> That's amazing. So um, we ended up getting into AAU basketball. I ended up playing on that team my whole AAU career from when I was 11 to when I was 18. So it was pretty amazing. Um, I was not good at all. I was frightened, um, especially my first practice. I tell this story all the time. Chine loves telling it. My first practice, I didn't anticipate practicing. So I want to clear the air there because people think that I actually knew I was going to practice and showed up in jean shorts. That's not oh my God. what happened. Wait, where did you think you were going? I thought I was just going to meet the team, oh, okay. you know, <laughs> meet and, and then, yeah, like a meet and greet. And then they saw me and they're like, hop in here. And I was like, and the first draw I ever had to do was two ball dribbling. And I mean, yeah, I don't need to explain. Not a lot of stretch and jorts, I'm sure. Not a lot of stretch and a lot of, a lot of trepidation and having to freaking dribble two balls at the same. I was like, why do we need to do this? There's only one ball. Like that was what was going through my mind. That's, that's a good point. (laughs) That was my logic, but I'm not the type of person to not finish something when I started it. So whether I was going to play or not, I was like, I'm going to get through this practice one way or another. I think that's pretty incredible that your first practice was like terrifying for you. A hundred percent. Of the sport that you end up being uber successful in. <laughs> Who's to say that I still am not terrified when I walk that's, into practice? That's I feel it. like all of us can say that there's practices that we're like, oh no. That's that's so, yeah. super fair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so you show up to your first practice in jorts, you have to do two ball dribbling. You're like, why do we have to do this? So at, at what point did you start to become comfortable with basketball and want to pursue it like you did? Ooh, I would probably say it took me maybe like three or four years before I was truly comfortable. Those first few years were certainly like impressionable for me and me trying to figure out like not even what my game was, but just like what the game of basketball was, you know? (laughs) And so things for me, I was taller than most everyone and I was quite athletic. So a lot of the things that I needed to learn came naturally, but then also too, I'm very much a practice player, you know? And when I would go to AAU practice or even middle school and high school practices, every minute counts for me. I'm not messing around. I'm not, you know, just coming to practice just to fill the time. Like I really want to get better. And so in those first few years before I really, I made like varsity in um, high school, I was just focused on like depth perception, balance, (laughs) finishing, being aggressive, especially without the ball, because as post players, you know, you don't, the ball has to be passed to you with the exception of getting rebounds. Um, Maybe not so now as the sport has evolved, you know, you have point forwards and such, but like when I was growing up, the ball had to be passed to you or you had to rebound. So that was kind of what I based my game off of early on. Like I was a ferocious rebounder. And then if the ball was passed to me, I, I prided myself on finishing. So that's kind of how like efficiency and aggressiveness has kind of become a part of my game. So you feel like, because you're like, okay, this is my only opportunity to score. Like when I get past the ball or when I rebound this, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. 
Exactly. And like for me, I'm also I very I love being on a team. And I love the idea of teamwork and what comes of it. So I always felt so horrible when someone gave me a great pass and I missed the shot. And so I really worked hard to be a good finisher, to have good touch around the rim. Um, and ultimately, like, you know, as co- as competition gets better, you realize that you can't shoot it every time. Like for me, it was easier growing up because I was bigger and, you know, yeah. I was able to do that. <laughs> but once the doubles start coming, people get better. That's where I felt as though my game evolved into sometimes you shooting it is not always the best option. Sometimes you need to be a facilitator. And then from there, you know, my my game took different. I guess, like steps into how I play now. It's so true. I'm curious, at what point in your teenage years do you feel like you had it, this it factor? Because not to jump ahead, but you end up being recruited, highly recruited to a lot of big basketball schools. So yeah. how do you go from showing up to your first practice in jorts to being like, oh, I'm, I'm actually really good at this? I would have to say that it it started, you know, when I entered high school and, you know, these scholarship letters started pouring in because I was I played for a solid like three, four years before I realized what basketball, what doors basketball opened. Yeah. So once the letters started coming in, I was like, is this junk mail? And then (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. And so then my parents, of course, they um, consulted like my coaches and other families who had had sons and daughters who had gotten scholarships. And um, we realized like, oh, wow, like this, this can bring opportunity, you know? And that was definitely in high school when I first entered high school and started playing. So I listened to an interview where you talked about how Nigerian culture doesn't that that your parents almost got some flack for having their daughters focus so much on sports because they were like, why aren't you just focusing on education and becoming a doctor, or becoming, you know, a lawyer or something like that? Like, how how did you navigate that as a kid and then also like as a family? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of what the flack that my parents got, we weren't exposed to. Mm. You know, my parents definitely kept a lot of that from us in an effort to, to you know, to maintain the innocence of like us playing and us having fun and us being in something new, especially something that we all grew to enjoy. Yeah. And as we got older and, you know, the letters started coming in, that was when parents were like, oh, what do we got to do? You know, because they wanted their kids to get scholarships. Totally. And I think that was that was an interesting observation is that, you know, education was very much still important to us. Hence why we chose to go to Savory. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like to get there, to do it for free and to go to an institution like Stanford came because of basketball and you know, it's everybody has their own perspective on how you how you maintain a dream Mm -hmm. um, or how a dream is, you know, made known to you. And uh, I think that's something that we kind of realized as a family. Um, And then individually, we just we made our decisions on where we wanted to go um, because we weren't about to waste that type of opportunity. For sure. So letters start pouring in and college and a scholarship becomes a real thing. How did you navigate the recruiting process and how did you end up at Stanford? So my recruiting process was incredibly filtered because everything came through my parents first. Okay. And then everything that made it through made it to me. 
Um, and I think that is, it's interesting because a lot of, a lot of athletes talk about how arduous and how intrusive their recruiting process was. And I felt that a little, but not nearly as much because my parents would like field calls and make sure that, you know, in the, in the process of recruiting the person or the, the kid that, you know, I was still respected and I was still protected. And so it was, I was, I'm such a, such a nerd. I loved every questionnaire that they sent. I filled all of them out. Like I That's was so adorable. excited <laughs> to fill out questionnaires. Um, and then of course we had like our home visits and I only took two official visits. Where'd you and, go? Stanford <laughs> well, and... I went to Stanford and Baylor. Oh, and what's crazy, what's crazy is that I took, so I took an unofficial to Duke too. Okay. When I landed at Stanford, so like, you know, you have the whole weekend. And so I yep. landed like the night before the first day. Cause we didn't want to like land on the first day and then just, you know, it's exhausting. It is. So the night that I landed, I hadn't seen the university, nothing. We landed in SFO and like I had, I knew already that that's where I wanted to go. They hadn't shown me anything. That's so crazy. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I hadn't even seen the school, nothing like. But That's it was crazy. it was really cool. Um, and of course, Tara and Kate, at the time it was Bobby as well. They put together an amazing trip. I mean, everything possible. It almost at times felt like the trip was more for my parents than it was for me, which I mean, I wasn't mad at. Yeah, because the more comfortable they are, the less they have to worry. So it was it was fun, though. It was really fun. That's that's cool. So how was your transition from high school into college because you're coming into a program that's you know yeah. historically incredible so what what did that what was that like for you it was stressful for me because to get to stanford so first of all the sun like the summer leading into my freshman year you know you have the, you have it's not really an option but you kind of go and you're in summer school <laughs> um and you have to have like a super valid excuse to not like go and mine was that i was at usa okay it was like a USA tournament or something. I think that was the year we went to Thailand. Yeah, it was Thailand. And so I wasn't able to come for summer school. And then after USA was done, I came back to Houston. So I came back to Houston and I was supposed to have like a few weeks and I had like a little bit of time. And then um, I had to leave early because there was a hurricane coming to Houston and she didn't want to okay. get stuck. Okay. And I needed to be there for orientation. And so I got there early by myself <laughs> And I ended up staying with one of my, f my family members and then also with Jane, Jane, Appel? yeah, Jane Appel, her family. She's no opened. longer Appel, I don't think, but yeah. No, she's Appel like, Marinelli. Yeah, exactly. Marinelli. <laughs> <laughs> and they opened their house up to me to stay until like I was able to move into Adelpha. So yeah, I, that all happened. But you know, my Stanford basketball fam ended up helping me out. Everybody was super helpful. I was very timid and I didn't like, I didn't like intruding on anyone. I didn't like be becoming a burden or anything, but eventually I was able to kind of let go of that and realize that like, Hey, I'm not the only one that's dealing with like a first time being, you know, a college student, especially in a place that you've never been. So for sure. Yeah. Well, you obviously got adjusted eventually because you ended up going to four straight final fours, <laughs> which is amazing. So how was it on the court in playing for Stanford and how did your college career kind of evolve? So, you know, when I first got there, 
if you're a player of a caliber that gets to go to a D1 school like Stanford, you know, everyone's coming from a place where they're the go-to, yeah. you know? And for me, I think that I, especially in just like in my, my sports career in general, I'm always the person that makes myself smaller. And so when I got there, I didn't have this pompous energy about me. I had this, okay, let me just, you know, I'm a freshman, let me stay in my space. And so that's kind of how I felt when I got there. And I was, I, I get comfortable being, you know, in a comfort zone and I don't realize it until someone tells me or until it's, it's realized on my own somehow through like experience. And that freshman year, I was coming off the bench and I was, you know, paying attention to the vets, the upperclassmen and listening to everything the coach said up until a point when I think something happened to where like the starting spot was like available. And it was totally like, they said like, you know, you could start if you wanted to, but you have to, you have to bring that energy. And I was like, no one's asking. No one's asking to replace anybody. I was like, I'm cool right here. No, like, really? <laughs> you're like, I'm good on the bench. I can like, come off. I, I do my, my job. Role. I'm all right. That's hilarious. <laughs> and eventually, like, things happened, and I ended up being able to start. And, I mean, I was still horrified. But, you know, I, I really worked through that through my career. And so, eventually, I came into my own leadership style. Because I feel mm -hmm. like everyone can be a leader. It's just you know, every, it manifests differently in everybody. So sure. I came into, and I'm, I'm the type of person that leads by example, because I'm such a practice person. I'm principled, like I'm all about diplomacy and justice for all. And so I think Love the it. best way to, the best way to exude that is to like treat your neighbors as yourself. You know, it's, it's so cliche, but that's really how it is. And um, that's kind of what my leadership style became up until like my senior year when vocally I started being a little bit more vocal, but I actually can't say that that didn't happen until like halfway through my career as a spark. Okay. But, um, yeah. So uh, towards the end, I came into my own as a player, mm -hmm. as a player. And I was still discovering things about my game that I didn't know I could implement. And that that's attributed a lot to my support system, my coaches and my teammates that encouraged me. Sometimes it's kind of, it's hard not to believe in yourself when so many people believe in you, you know? Absolutely. And that's what pushes me a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, I believe in myself, you know? Well, sometimes... it sounds like you do now, but do you feel like you did back then? <laughs> to be honest, I can't say that I did fully. Like yeah. there were parts of me, like the, there were glimpses of like, oh, <laughs> but yes. but if it wasn't for Chanae, like you need to go to the WNBA, I was like, oh, okay, okay. Let's <laughs> let's talk about that for a second because Chanae comes. You're going into your junior year, yeah, and she's so, a freshman, yeah. So how did that process go with her? Because you know she she plays WNBA. She became yeah. an amazing basketball player as well. Following in your footsteps, you blazed this trail for her. So how did it work with her coming to Stanford and following you? I was definitely more so the sister that was like, yo, take your own path, you know? And rightly so. She went on different official visits. Like she went okay. to two schools that I didn't go to. And I think that, you know, her, her doing her own thing was represented in like her own recruitment process. And, you know, when she came to Stanford, I was trying to balance the whole like, hey, I'm here with, hey, do your thing. It was interesting too, because like the only stipulation I had was I love you, but I don't want to room with you. That's hilarious. You told her ahead of time. You were like, you can come here, but we're never rooming together. I never, I never really said it like that. But like when the conversation came up, I was just kind of like, oh, well, I'm looking to live over there. So I can help you figure out where you want to. 
And then also too, like, you know, with like the rooming system. So for people who are listening, Stanford has, Stanford's unique in many ways as a university, as a school, as a college. But um, one of the ways is that basically everyone lives on campus all four years. So the way the rooming works is like you get this tiered system. I don't even know how it works anymore because. Is it different now? So Probably. I don't know. But NECA, I forgot to sign up for the draft one year. <gasps> and so I ended up rooming with a random person my, my junior how year. Was that? And I like screwed. <laughs> I screwed with the group of friends I was supposed to live with, the girl I was supposed to room with. And I was like, guys, I didn't know I had to sign up. I'm pretty sure somebody signed me up like sophomore year. It was a disaster. <sighs> so I love talking all things Stanford. Um, but getting towards the end of your college career, you were considering not even you weren't even considering going pro. No, I wasn't. So explain that because for the listeners, you end up going, you end up being the first draft pick of your class. Let me tell you, Kelly, that's another example of Nika making herself small. Exactly. So yeah, so tell, <laughs> tell me about that. I just, it's like create to, to, to listen or to read about and to see what you have done in your career and the person that you are and the leader that you are and this voice that you are, the fact that you were like, oh, I might not go pro. Or yeah. I don't, I'm not even considering going pro. And that you made yeah. yourself small. Yeah, I don't I don't know why I kept doing it, but I owe this all to Chanae because Chanae was like, you do realize that you can get drafted number one and go to, That's I mean, I, th I think at the time the lottery hadn't happened yet, but she's like, you do realize that. I was like, all right, cool. Thank Whatever. goodness for Chanae. <laughs> right, honestly. Like but, what? Um, yeah, I think to be I think it really had a lot to do with my ignorance towards sports opportunities for women, you know? That's I didn't fair. know. Yeah, I mean like I didn't know what opportunities there were. I knew there was a WNBA, but all I had been told was like they don't make money. And so I was like, well, I mean, am I going to keep playing if I can't make money or am I yeah. just going to like dive head first into like a career that I know will be, you know, fruitful at the end? And th learning through that was very helpful because it exposed me to a lot that I didn't know. And most notably playing overseas, I didn't realize that that was a thing. And so understanding that certainly helped me. But then also, I also came to terms with like, I'm not ready to be done playing. Like I was really enjoying myself and I was, I was happy being on a team. Um, there's just something I always tell people that being on a team is the next closest thing to being family. Absolutely. And sometimes even as close as family, because you develop a family structure with people that you that you don't know and that mm -hmm. come from different walks of life, you know, and that are just there for a common goal. So that drive certainly is why I play basketball. And that's why I kept playing as well as what I realized could be fruitful opportunities being a professional athlete. I love that. So one, did you come to understand the overseas setup before you decided to go pro? So this is another NECAism. <laughs> I can't love this. I'm loving this. In the in in the flurry of it all, my naivete was like, okay, cool, I'll play overseas, just sign the contract, and then wherever oh, no. I end up. Oh, and like no. it wasn't like wherever I end up, like I had good representation, decent representation, because my parents were even through there through the whole like agency picking process and everything. Yeah. And so the first contract that I signed was to go to Poland. Yep. And every time I realized this, every time I went overseas up, I want to say up until like maybe the last two seasons that I had, they were like, okay, they're paying this much. Okay. It's in Poland. All right. That's <laughs> it. And I was like, okay, 
like my parents were there. So I was like, if they're here, it must be okay. So I, I just, you know, signed. And then I, I was, I, it didn't occur to me that I was going to go play in Poland until like the day before You were actually getting on a flight yeah. to go to Poland. <laughs> and the same happened with China. The same happened with Russia. I just, I just realized it's like, this is a part of how I make money. This is a part of my professional life. Um, and yeah, this is just like part of the, the, the deal. It's a part basically. of the whole journey. And I think I've always kind of been the type of person that like, in a lot of ways, like it does sound careless of me, but I've also kind of been the type of person that I'm not going to hang myself up on the variables that can keep me from a big opportunity. So I'm not going to be like, I have to play with her or I have to play here. Like I'm going to go there do my job and see what comes of the situation. As long as it's safe and I'm able to, you know, play and have a, he a healthy and comfortable, you know, way of life, then whatever challenges come, I'll be able to take care of. I mean, that's a good outlook. Yeah. That's like the uh, a way to be a go-getter right there. Yeah, without realizing it. Cause yeah. I'm not like, oh, where's the cash at? You know, you know, I was just kind of like, oh, you know, a team wants me and they really want me. So I think that's a good start if a team really wants you. Yeah. So what were some of the, the variables that you encountered once you did get on those flights to Poland and China well, and Russia. <laughs> okay, so Poland, to be honest, it would be difficult for me to truly depict to you what was right and wrong because that was my rookie season overseas. Mm -hmm. The most traumatic thing I remember in Poland was that I had to learn how to drive a stick shift because in Europe, most people drive stick shift. And my dad came over for Had like you two learned weeks. before? No, no, no. Okay. No. So my dad came over... <laughs> for like two weeks to like help settle me in. And he taught me how to drive stick shift. And my dad is not the greatest teacher. So like I'm stalling like in the middle of the street and I'm just freaking out. But for the most part, my Polish team, the owner of our team, he basically like owned what was their version of like Payless or like DSW. <laughs> yeah. And like his stores are like in every country in Europe. So like he was wealthy and he took care of us. Like we flew privately, domestically. Yeah, that's amazing. And then also for people that aren't really cognizant of like overseas i don't know if it's the same for soccer but like we have you're in your your national league and then you're in an international league yep and so better contracts come when your team is in two leagues so we were in the euro league which is the highest level so that was really great we had like a, a historical season like we made it to the final eight or so and then we ended up winning the polish championship that was really cool and then china came so China happened because not not by choice. I had okay. signed to go to a team in Russia and it ended up being a deal that was not fully transparent and oh, was taking advantage of me. And so China bought me out. So I had to go play in China, which was actually interesting because that same team that ended up buying me out is the same team that I went back to two years ago and we won a Chinese national championship. That's amazing. So that was really cool. So, you know, your blessings are set up in different ways you know, you don't realize. Now, being in China, I always tell people I would never suggest a rookie go to China. Okay. I feel like you need more overseas experience before you go to China because not only are, the, are you the only foreigner on your team that's playing – you're more than likely the only person that speaks English outside of your translator. And like okay. your translator is there. Like my translator was on the baseline, like coach says to do this, you know? No, really? Yeah. Yeah. He was, he yeah. Was yeah. You. So it was translating practice for you. Practice games, everything. Like your translator is there. Your translator becomes your best friend. I was because say, you want to go to friend. a mall. Yeah. Like that's how it was. So <laughs> that was that. And then I was in Russia for four years and I would have to say that that's like, 
outside of, I mean, like all the teams are my team, but like Russia was really like, that was like my low key home. Like I was there for four years. I played for Dinamo Kursk, which is west of Moscow, like southwest of Moscow. Okay. Um, and we, we did amazing there. It was, it was fantastic. The organization, it's like in, for a city in Russia, it is, it does feel like it's in the middle of nowhere. But it's a big city, but it's mm-hmm. like in the middle of nowhere. But they took care of us so much. I have friends and from the team and from the staff that I will remain connected with. Uh, we went to the EuroLeague Final Four. We were always in the EuroLeague, but like we won a EuroLeague championship the third year I was there. And then we ended up going to the Final Four as well. So like the team was very successful and I had such a great time. And then I ended up back in China again, playing a half season. And, so you've yeah you've been all over the place. I've been all over the place. That's awesome. And it sounds like I mean obviously there are the um, obstacles and variables that yeah. you have to get over. But it sounds like it's been a good experience for you, which is pretty cool. You have to have an outlook. Like I'm not discounting people's like negative experiences. I'm sure yeah. that you have friends and you have your own experiences that you can speak of outside of even playing professionally, but even with USA. Yeah, you know. But for the most part, you know, you have to have a certain outlook and understand, totally. you know, kind of the bigger, the bigger picture, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's yeah. what you make of it. If you have, a, if you have, if you bring positive energy to it, it's probably going to be a right. hopefully positive experience. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Right. Uh, but so we kind of jumped ahead, but I want to talk about getting drafted number one and, sure. and your rookie season because you end up being rookie of the year, which is incredible in such a just experienced league. WNBA is a hard league to get your footing in, I yeah. think. So what was what was draft day like for you? How, what was that experience? Yeah, it was cool because it was my mom's birthday on draft no day. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it still hadn't quite hit me. You know, because you get these you get these calls and you have these projections. They're like, mm-hmm. you're going to go number one or you're going to go this, you know. And of course, Sinead was there like, oh, just, just wait. You can't wait. <laughs> I'm just like, I love okay. your Sinead. Sinead impressions. They're so funny. They're so So good. like my whole focus was like, OK, let me get ready. Let me not look crazy. Let me go out there. And when my name is called, like, I'll you know, I'll be forever grateful. And it's funny because like after I got drafted, it didn't occur to me that I could have ended up in Tulsa. Really? Why? What happened? Because they were one of the top lottery picks um, before, obviously, LA ended up being number one. But, like, Chine made that known. She was like, when they were drafted, I was like, Tulsa could have gotten the number one pick. And I was like, I was like, yeah. Yeah, that is a moment of gratitude right there. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I thought it was amazing how I still ended up being in California, especially after playing the USC's and UCLA's, like, all four years. Like, it was familiar, you know? Sure. So it was great. My parents were there. Chanae was there. It was it was definitely a day to remember. And I didn't feel small that day, Kelly. I didn't Good. feel Good. That makes me happy. <laughs> Maybe that was the day that started the... NECA being like, I freaking got it. Yeah. And then you go on and you back it up being rookie of the year. So did you go into that season feeling pressure of I got drafted number one, therefore I should be rookie of the year? Oh, 100%. I, I think anyone would be lying if they got drafted number one and didn't feel that pressure. I didn't allow it to necessarily get to me because once I got to L.A., like, you go through this period of realizing that you're not going to win every game like you did <laughs> in, cool, in college. Right? And it is a traumatic experience because like you'll lose like your third game of the season. You're like, no, it's, like, all, the, over. it's all over. And then your vets are looking at you like, okay, 
calm, calm down. down. <laughs> right. Like what team has ever gone undefeated in a season? Yeah. Once you get over that, I guess like once I got over that, my focus was really just to be the best I could for my team. And quite frankly, just being a sponge for the vets that I had. I mean, I, my first year I played with Candace, Elena Beard, Delisha Milton-Jones, Ebony Hoffman, Lindsay Harding. Like it was, I was like, oh, wow. These are all people that you grew up watching. Yeah. And now you're playing with them. It's certainly a moment of recognition kind of, mm-hmm. you know, like this is real life, you know? For sure. So that was kind of my focus, just being being the best I could for my team, being like productive so that we could get wins. I mean, like you said, it's an it's an interesting transition to go from being part of such a dominant college program and then yeah. go, turning pro and being like, oh, this is the big leagues, kids. And you got to you got to be able to weather the storm that is being a professional. Right. So I want to jump ahead to 2016 because this is a big year for you. And to start it off, you win league MVP. And not only that, but you set a record with a true shooting percentage of 73.7%. Can you first explain what true shooting percentage is? So if I'm explaining it as best as I can, it basically takes into account like field goal percentage, free throw percentage, okay. and all of that combined. So yeah, <laughs> in plain English, it means you had the most efficient shooting season. And this was a record set, not just for WNBA, but NBA. So you had the most efficient shooting season in the history of basketball. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're like, don't, don't talk, don't talk, don't, don't focus Thank on me. Thank you. I've learned and, that's what you say to, to like, yes. to compliments. Well, Thank yeah, you. but like, but <laughs> you should, I mean, that's you doing that. And it, and, and just in, in having, so I obviously, you know, read through these notes, knew this, but having you talk about how back as a teenager, early starting out in basketball NECA was focused on being the most efficient you, you possibly could be to see that then come to fruition years later as a professional and to set a record in basketball is incredible. So one, can you talk about, do you feel like you did anything differently going into the 2016 season? I just let go. Really? I was like, yeah. I was like, let me just have some fun. No way. Yeah. That's, that's what I remember most about that year. It was like, let me go out here and just have some fun. That's amazing. I was not expecting that answer. I was expecting to be like, well, in the offseason, you know, I, I was doing this number of reps and that sort of thing. Yeah. I was like, let's just have fun. That's incredible. I'm sorry if I'm disappointing people with this answer. No, I feel like people need to hear that. It's like the best answer ever because it's so true. I feel like so many people get bent out of shape over trying to be the best they can possibly be. But then at the end of the day, it's like we're a professional athlete in any walk of life, whatever you do yeah. well, whatever your passion is. If you enjoy it, you're going to be successful in it. Yeah. I all like as a person, I always, I always try to bring my best. And I was just speaking to some students the other day. They asked about, you know, how are you able to bring energy to this conversation that you're talking to us right now with everything going on? And I basically said, like, in everything, there's a, you know, you have a hundred percent of you. Sometimes you can't bring that a hundred percent of you, but if you can bring 80%, if you can bring 100% of that 80%, then that's cool, Yeah, you know? And so, like, I pride myself on being that type of person in everything that I do. 
And so the work that I was doing, it wasn't as though I had to create a new formula for working out or shoot a different way. You know, I had already been doing that work. And so I would say that 2016 was certainly more mental Mm. than it was physical. And Mm -hmm. once I was able to, you know, release the mental weight of whatever and have fun, the physical work that I had been doing for so long, just kind of, you know, it showed out. Was there a point in, in that year, a moment in the year that you realized, all right, something's clicked for me? (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, there was. Um, Let's hear it. (laughs) It was the game against Dallas at Dallas when I went perfect from the field. Like I shot 12 for 12 (laughs) from the field. And I think I was like two for two from the three point line and like, I don't know, like maybe seven for seven from like the free throw line or something like that. Ridiculous. At that point, I was like, huh. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna just roll with this. Don't overthink anything. Just go out there and keep having fun. You know, just do your thing. Well, you end up, not only do you have a great personal season, but your team is also crushing it. And you get all the way to the WNB finals. Um, You're playing the Minnesota Lynx. They're in the middle of their dynasty Mm -hmm. and you guys go up 2-1 in the best of five series in that finals, but you lose game four and you're at home, Yeah, which means you go back to Minnesota for game five. What were you thinking after that loss? Our coach said it best. He said, I don't doubt what you guys were bringing. You guys played hard. But today you were trying to win the championship and not mm. the game. Interesting. And I was like, absolutely correct. That's exactly what happened. And that was kind of what was running through my mind. Um, but throughout that series, whether it was a win or a loss, you know, I just kept thinking to myself, like, there's still another opportunity. There's still another opportunity. And I think people get in these series, especially, I think people get so hung up on, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda, mm-hmm. or she did that, or they did this. And and just not dwelling and looking forward while still learning from what you experience is really the key. And For that's sure. that's the attitude we took into game five. In game five, from your coach's advice, do you feel like you were just trying to win the game or you were like, no, this is a, this is the championship game? Oh, no, for sure. I was just like, I <laughs> I was like, I'm trying to watch a time. Holy shit. Because <laughs> at that point, it was like, there's no more games after yep. this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, in my mind, but like, you know, like I'm, I'm a relatively collected person. So I wasn't like freaking out or anything. But I was just that game was just I just will never forget when we went into the arena because we had just watched the bad boys documentary okay um the night before like over dinner and it was the celtics that they had to be and it was when we walked in there it was literally a sea of green they had a green t-shirt on every single seat it was insane and it was it was just like when i got when i was playing i was just like this is what people this is the stuff people do it for like not just the championship but like being in that game right being able to play on the court and be a part of that it's just you can't get that anywhere else it's so true yeah 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 you can't it's not you can't replicate it no it's such an an amazing feeling and you're in their home sea of green 
clock is counting down. You hit the game winner with three seconds left to take home the title. And what is so interesting, and I'm just realizing this now, this is what you did as a kid. This is what you built like your foundation on. Hearing you talk about little NECA, like teenage NECA, learning basketball, and what you focused on, and then like mm-hmm. to see it happen and win you a WNBA championship is insane. So walk me through the last shot. Entering the series, first of all, you know, like when when you're in a series like that and you win MVP or some type of honor, like they're going to be smothering you the entire series. Right. So for the better part of that series, you know, I wasn't able to get all the shots that I wanted to get. And I, in my mind, especially leading up to game five, I was like, all right, let's take this back to 14 year old NECA and. I'm going to play like a role player. Like I'm going to have that tenacity. I'm going to be the garbage woman. Like I'm about to be out here. Like I don't care if I can't make a move, you know, I'm going to get rebounds and I'm going to finish, you know, that was really, and play defense. Of course, that was really my mindset going in there. And even, even to the point where I was like, if I can get the rebound, I'm going to make it difficult as hell for anyone to, So if you like watch back that game, I was like swatting and poking. Like if I couldn't get it, I was like poking it out of bounds. Yeah. That was the attitude that I had. And I've had moments, especially at Stanford, where, you know, I knew the last shot was coming to me. And in those moments, you kind of have, you know, you have a little, you have that pressure, of course, but you either do it or you don't. And for me, I think that I had released so much expectation of what was going to happen that I was just in this space of like, just be ready, just be ready. And so the shot went up and like I said, I was like, I'm getting a rebound. So I got the rebound and I don't even remember getting blocked the first time. Really? I don't even remember. remember You blacked out. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even remember getting blocked the first time. All I knew was that the ball came back in my hands or was still in my hands as far as I perceived. And I was like, a shot has got to go up. Like time is running down. (laughs) And that was, that's the quietest my mind has ever been. Like I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just in the moment. I knew what had to get done and I did my best to try and do it. Um, I just got goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's so, that's so, oh, it's so cool. So yeah, that was that. And what's funny is like after that, of course, there's like clips of them trying to get the ball back out of bounds and like shoot a shot and. I was on the ball and Elena like yelled at me to like come double Maya. And so they get it in, they shoot it. I mean, it was like a Hail Mary shot and we yeah. won. And the adrenaline is so ridiculous. Like I still felt like there was a game six. Really? Like the come down didn't happen for me till like 72 hours later. That's crazy. But it was a lot of fun, obviously. And there's no way anyone can do that by themselves. Like, right? I don't care how good oh. you are. You can't do that by yourself. And that team was awesome. Like everybody contributed, whether they were on the court or off. So, yeah. That's amazing. I love that you said that because I I feel exactly the same way in any championship I've ever won. It's like, it's a full team, not even players. It's like staff, it's everybody. Exactly. It takes the whole village to win a championship. It does. You know, you win the title, the celebration begins. I saw a clip of your mom coming out and hugging you, your dad's (laughs) hugging you. Like, what was that like? Because that was that's that was like your first big title. Yeah. Everything that everyone thinks a championship is, it, it certainly is. But I felt as though there was so much more reflection in the journey. Mm. 
than the the pinnacle you know you I thought so much more about the ascent and Mm -hmm. it's just like one of those it was kind of one of those reflective moments that you I'm not sure if you can really get otherwise you know as far as it relates to like sports true but it was just such a it was such a beautiful moment also in that week and time after to see how much it meant to people who don't play and like to people who felt like they were a part of the family and are a part of the family, you know, I mean, we had people in the front office, you know, you had everyone else's family members. Like it was just, it was really amazing to see. I love that you said that because that's so true. And that's something that a lot of people probably don't even realize comes with winning a championship is what it means to to so many people. So you win, you win freaking championship, your league MVP, you're rocking, and then you go on and you're elected president of the WNBA Players Union. What inspired you to pursue that role? I will not lie. I was not inspired. Okay, because before you can go, like, in talking to you today, like, listeners don't know this. We don't know each other well. Like, we obviously know who each other are. Like, we've, we've crossed paths. But just hearing you be like, mm, little NECA, I want to go in my shell. And then, because I know you as, like, the NECA that is this beast on the court and then president of the WNBA Players Union. So, yeah, you, so you weren't inspired to take that role. So how did no. you end up in that role? So years before that, I was nominated to be a player representative without my knowledge. (laughs) And then after that, I was also nominated to be on the executive committee without my knowledge. Okay. And so, I mean, I had a role to fill. So I was like, so this is another example of people (laughs) seeing so much potential and character and leadership in you. And just thrusting me into exactly. it. Okay. So right. that's kind of what happened. And then when I when the election came up because Tamika Catchings was retiring, she basically came up to me and she was like, You should run for president. And this is me. I'm already like a I'm already like a junior VP. And you know, as a you know, I didn't really have a lot of responsibility as a vice president aside from being like on the calls and such. And I looked at her, I was like, Oh, what? she was like you should run and I was like oh you know catch like I don't know if that's for me she's like let me clarify you are running and I was like I love it I mean if if catch suggests you to do something then you do it you just kind of do it and so I did it and I ran unopposed even in my re-election last year I ran unopposed so that's where I'm, I'm here no I'm just joking but um that is how it happened. But I, I realized I realized my role through it all. You know, I, I grew I grew to love the position through it all. And it's just crazy how like me as a person and my personality, it it feels very comfortable in this position, yeah. even through the challenges. And that's kind of where I found myself now. I love it. I mean, I feel like people think that, you know, leaders or people in positions of power have to be these very loud or you know very outgoing personalities and that's not the case sometimes the best leaders are the ones that are exactly your makeup that is like team player diplomacy I mean in my mind those are the best leaders but that's just my opinion (laughs) but I want to talk more about your position as the president and and what you've been able to do for the WNBA um, because you've done some pretty historic things 
the first one was you wrote this piece uh, for the Players' Tribune, Bet on Women, announcing the decision that in 2018 the players opted out of their current collective or your, your current collective bargaining agreement. Yeah. Um, so what was your role in overseeing that decision to opt out and why did the players decide to do that? So the role of the role that I held and also the executive committee was to hear the players out. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting because we were learning through the whole process in our own way. And, you know, through that, we learned that opting out didn't mean like strike, Mm -hmm. lockout. It just meant, okay, we got to We got to come back to the drawing board with this because this is not working for us right now. Yep. And then the work kind of begins, you know, and so even the process of opting out, like we have an amazing executive director in Terry Jackson. And before the opt out wasn't just kind of like, do you guys want to stay or not? Like, no, that's not how it was. It was (laughs) it was months of read the current collective bargaining agreement. What are things that you don't like? Do you want to change it? You know, like those types of conversations. And and then it led. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, you guys know. And yeah. then <laughs> that's why I'm like then. interested to hear about this because I feel like you guys were able to do something incredible. So and but people don't understand. Like a lot of people think, oh, you're opting out um and and your CBA is just about salary. But it's so many no. other things. It's like incredibly intricate and complicated. No, yeah. So we that led up until the opt-out. And like in that opt-out, we basically exclaimed that like we want to bet on ourselves. You know, we we want to see our value reflected in something that wholly affects us. And so that's kind of what led to the year of negotiations and us truly listening to every player and their needs and what we can do to implement the needs of players that can benefit everybody. And we were able to come to an agreement that was historical in what we were able to implement, but also historical in it serving as a stepping stone for where we really do see this league going. Um, And it (laughs) it took a lot of conversations, a lot of group chats, a lot of texts, a lot of emails, um, a lot of uncomfortable Zoom calls. And (laughs) and I say Zoom because like as women, like we we don't have the luxury of like being around to meet and fly in like we we're all playing 12 months out of the season or have other jobs. So much of the negotiations happened virtually. So I've been a part of the last two CBA negotiations with with U.S. soccer. And we're just creating a CBA for a pool of 30 to 45 potential players, whereas right. you're leading the charge in creating a CBA that is hundreds of players. How did you handle that? It was really just talking to the players. like And I'm not going to lie, like badgering them because up until this point, up until our last CBA, like the participation was abysmal. And that was something that I knew as president that I wanted to change. I love it. Because all you do is hear about players complaining about what they do and don't have, but then they're not responding to the emails. And so much of our time was like, get on this call, hop on this call, tell your teammates to talk. Like, you know, like it got to a point where I was just kind of like, all right, you guys, since no one's talking, we just re- we'll resign the same one that we just signed. And then you get since, the emails coming in and the text coming they're in. They're like, wait a second, wait a second. Right. And like, sometimes it takes that, you know, it takes a little bit of tough loving at times, you know, and I think that it had been years of players feeling like they hadn't been heard. And so they had been desensitized 
to people asking how they feel about things. And that was something that as an EC, we really wanted to change the culture of how we engage as a cohort in the WNBA. And that's something that we've been able to tap into and hope that it continues as well as kind of expands as we evolve. I love it. It's a lot. It Um, is. It is. So before we get to the, you guys did it, I'm curious, in the negotiations, did you feel like it was, okay, both sides are working towards a common goal or Mm -hmm. was it a bit more contentious? I would say the last, the one before this one was certainly more contentious. You know, I've alluded to it feeling like it was divorce court in a lot of ways. I think I was like two or three years in. Okay. And you know, I was one of those, I was a player rep at the time and they're like, hop on the calls, hop on the calls. And they're talking about all this stuff. And I'm just like, why is everyone yelling? Like what's going on? <laughs> like, I don't understand what, what does this have to do with anything? Oh and um, I think we had had enough of those types of exchanges. So this time around, it was as though the way that I saw it was like both sides want the same outcome, but have different ways of getting there. And f- navigating those differences and finding common threads while also compromising in a lot of ways is how we were able to do what we did. And that doesn't happen without listening. And yeah. it doesn't happen without the EC listening to the players. And it doesn't happen without the WNBA listening to the players Absolutely. and to the EC. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome because it is so true. It's like at some point, this isn't sustainable to keep having negotiations this way like we all want the best and the the same thing so let's figure out a way that we can structure them to get us to that place right well you guys got there and you guys signed a new eight-year cba in 2020 the beginning of this year it offers fully paid maternity leave improved travel arrangements increased investment in marketing better compensation so when you announce the deal because you announced the deal on Good Morning America with the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert. Is that how you say her name? Engelbert? Yeah. It presented a joint victory between players and league. And it was it was celebrated on both sides. Why do you think it was such a big win for both the league and the players? I think the process was a big win for the league and for the players because um, outside of the outcome, how we got there was certainly certainly something that we need to consider moving forward. And it's it's definitely a relationship that we need to maintain between the players and the league. And then, you know, outside of that, you know, obviously the outcome was huge because there are so many changes in there, however big or small, yeah, that we were able to, you know, come through with for our players. Granted, it's, it's not by any means an end game. Absolutely. But it's definitely a catalyst. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. We have to keep that fire alive. And we also have, we have to bet on ourselves. And I think something that we really learned, and this is interesting because I have friends, you know, on the NBA side and the NFL side, and they talk about like, how are you guys able to do all this stuff? And one thing that can't happen is disjointedness among the players, That's actually one of the bigger reasons, as opposed to like the league versus the players. That's a bigger reason why things have such a hard time making progress. And I think as women um, in our respective sports, we've shown that when you link up, they don't have an option. They don't have an option. They really don't. But we're conditioned to think through fear. You know, like we're conditioned to think, well, what could happen? Look at how we look at the conditions that we got now, you know? It could be worse, but we don't want it to be worse. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like if you don't ask, then the answer is going to be no. Exactly. The answer is going to be no. Yeah. 
and you have to do it together. You, you can't do it alone. I love that. I fully believe in the power of the collective and I've yeah. seen it be successful throughout my career. And it's so true. Um, well, congrats. Cause that's awesome. And, and I was stoked <laughs> to see it as just like a fan, you know, to, to be like, yeah, hell yeah. If you put in the investment, you're going to see a return on the investment. Yeah. And I feel like that you guys are a great example of that. I mean, you guys too. Let's not forget you guys. Yeah. You know, we're all, we're yeah. all trying to, 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 to do our <laughs> And I had to learn too, because when I was um, with doing the Players' Tribune with the T, Ali was explaining to me how like NWSL and USA are like different. Mm-hmm. I was really trying to grasp all of that. You know, it's different. Yeah, it so, is. So, yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's where our setup is fascinating. I yeah. don't think it's in the best way, personally. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of change that needs to happen for both entities to be as successful as we want them to be, particularly the NWSL. And I hope that the NWSL is looking at what y'all did and taking a page from your book of how to create a solid foundation of a collective bargaining agreement. Cause I think that we certainly, we need that in the NWSL. Um, so wobble season happened. Walk us through that. How did you guys, how did that come to be? Um, I'm not going to lie, Kelly. It was a hot mess. <laughs> the deep breath you just took, I can feel the weight of like, you're like, Oh my God, even thinking about it stresses you out. It was a hot mess. And I mean that in the most respectful way. I know you do. (laughs) Because like what I mean by that is just like no one knew what they were doing. Like no one this year knew what they were doing. No one. And that's just the human in us, you know. And so that led to experiences that we had never had, conversations that we had never had, emotions and, you know, just mental states that we have never been in. And that, that was not, that was not short of the planning process, you know? And I think that, um, professionally speaking, I had never been, I I don't, that's the hardest thing I've ever had to do for sure. It was stressful for everybody down to Kathy, you know, and obviously the players, And I really feel for the players, too, because I even had a privilege in it all because I was in on the conversations. I knew what was being said and the players could only go by what we told them. So I didn't disregard that in any way. Um, But we were able to piece it together however we could make our demands of which we were paid 100 percent of our salary. And that was huge. Big time. And so going in, um, we wanted 100% our salary and we wanted to amplify our voices. And we did We did just that. Absolutely did. Now, not to say that, you know, it was it was all lollipops and rainbows like, in there. Yeah, smooth sailing. <laughs> it was not. But um, we, we, made, we, we, we tackled challenges and we made it work. Yeah. And again, hat off to, to figuring that out. But then also the social activism that came out of that and yeah, the voice that you guys were able to have as players. Can you talk about that process of coming together as a collective and like, this is what we're going to do. This is what we believe is important and what, what we want to use our voices for. 
Yeah, so going in, um, a non-negotiable for us was certainly amplifying our voices. And through that manifested our social justice council, of which um, constituted of, you know, a league, like a league representative, and then players, of course. And then we had advisors that we were able to kind of piece together as we came in contact with people, as we sought out their expertise. And to be honest, everything from that came as we went. You know, as we were able to have conversations with Michelle Obama, Tamika Palmer, Stacey Abrams, um, Reverend Raphael Warnock, then we were able to create these initiatives that we were that were so wonderfully executed throughout the season. You know, I think going in the Social Justice Council did an amazing job of dedicating each week to a different woman who had been who had suffered at the hands of police brutality and violence. And as we became more involved, you had players that came with initiatives and ideas and we were just able to piece it together. And then also, of course, with what was happening in the news, we were also able to organize around those types of things. So I got to say, like, that was that was definitely the best part of playing this season, not just knowing that we had a voice, that we've had a voice even before the season, knowing that we organized, but also us being able to do that on the fly while playing games was remarkable. Yeah. And I'm really proud of everybody. For sure. I think, like I said, I was watching from afar and to be able to see you guys do that was so important because to me, sports can drive culture. And 100% for y'all to be like, you know what? No, we're going to use our voices and we're going to take this opportunity because everyone's watching, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it was awesome. What is it about the WNBA that you think has made it one of the most progressive leagues in professional sports? Oh, we're 70% black women. Exactly. <laughs> it's just that simple, really. Yeah. If we're not 100% women, we're 70% black women. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, naturally we are unfortunately inherently political yeah it's we don't choose to be it just is and so that drives that that authenticity drives our action and so we just naturally do and we naturally represent and speak out and affect change and hold people accountable and educate ourselves and our communities and i I really think that's what it is not i think i know yeah i know that's what it is yeah absolutely so I, i follow you on social media and watch the stuff you put out there and i love it And in one of the interviews you did, the question was posed, you know, how do we, and and this is something I've thought about a lot, how Mm. do we make sure this isn't just a blip on the map Yeah. and real change is seen moving forward? And your answer, you answer to that accountability and action. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit more on that? Accountability and action, the way that I see it is twofold and also constant. You know, there you're constantly either holding yourself accountable or not. And through that follows the action you are taking or are not. And so through that constant, it can become twofold when you realize that you're on the better side of either one of those things. So whether you like it or not, and when it comes to history, you're a part of it. And what you're doing or what you're holding yourself responsible for is on you. Absolutely. Even if you feel as though you're not doing anything to contribute to a problem or you feel as though you're doing enough, it's just it never stops. And so that's kind of how I perceive the accountability and action part. Like I'll use as an example for me, I'm Nigerian American. 
I don't have the underpinnings and the trauma of truly understanding the Black American experience as it pertains to the history of this country, just simply because of my upbringing through Nigerian culture. That doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with me. It just means that I have to figure out what part of history can I now use my experience to contribute to being on the better side of history. And so that's kind of how I see it. For example, like I feel as though, and it looks different for everyone. That's something that's very important, especially in this digital age, you know, screw what everyone else is doing. What works for you? You know, what works for you? Because we get so caught up in trying to do things other people are doing and it leads to fractured accountability and fractured action. It's performative. So you just have to figure out, yeah, it's all performative. So you have to figure out what, what works for you. And so as an example, like I'm all about educating myself. Like I'm a Googler. Like that's what I do. (laughs) I look up everything and I found myself in a position to educate myself more. I did not know that the census is as important as voting. I had no idea. You know, like on social media now, they have all of these like 10 slides of like, let's talk about the census. I read that and I was like, census.com. Like, (laughs) have I filled it out? I was, and then I was like, I was sending it to everybody. I was like, fill it out, fill it out, fill it out. Like, you know, it's just, and that's my version of holding myself accountable, being able to educate myself. And then the action that I can take through that is helping other people educate themselves as well. So that's kind of how I view the accountability and action. It's constant. It is. You just got to make sure, you know, you have to keep checking yourself and make sure that you're holding yourself accountable. And that accountability is following with the action that is contributing to the betterment for everybody. Perfectly said. So overall, mm-hmm. how was the Wubble experience because I think I already know the answer, but, you know, how are you holding up mentally, emotionally, physically by the end? I wasn't, Kelly. <laughs> I wasn't holding up. Understandable. I mean, the bliss I felt when I left was <laughs> unparalleled. The bliss. I'm just going to be upfront, honestly. Let's hear it. It was not ideal. It was not ideal. And I think that it's important for people to know that because... In a world in which we're looking for a release and an escape, people need to understand what these women and men did to put a game on your television. It was hard. And that's outside of playing. That's outside of going out there and scoring points. And that was, for me personally, that was manifested in so many ways. I mean, I battled many injuries this season and everything was exacerbated by the stress of it all. And I'm not, I'm not at all discounting my role in all of this. I won't take it back. I'm glad that I'm able to do what I do. But, you know, there just comes a point when, and I, I don't like giving energy to like naysayers, but it's like, oh my God, she sat out with a migraine. Like, what the hell? She can't, I was like. It weighs on you. If you thought it wasn't that bad. Why do you, like, I sat out of an elimination game. Like that, you know, it's just, and then that on top of like all the other players that, I mean, the moms were in there with their kids. I couldn't believe having to deal with that and still having to take care of my child in there. Yeah. It was just a lot. It was a lot. I'm very grateful we were able to amplify our voices and that viewership was up a lot for both us, for both of our leagues. Yeah. And I hope that, I hope that what we learn from it, both pleasant and otherwise, can be taken in 
to account as we move forward, really. So, yeah. Well, it's so important to to speak truthfully and honestly, like you're human. Freaking yeah. hard. I mean, did people want to hear us say like, that was so great. Like, no. What? <laughs> like nothing, nothing that is that is worth doing comes easy. That's that's just the reality. Precisely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that you didn't have times that you enjoyed playing and where it was of fun course. to be around teammates, but it's like the reality of the situation is there's a lot of shit that comes along with like trying to be the best you can possibly be. Best yeah. league, the best player, all those things. But you made it out. You're out. Made it out. You're free. Free. <laughs> As the president, what are your priorities over the next 18 to 24 months? I mean, forward, really. You know, I don't necessarily have any agenda in mind right now, but just forward, you know, keep listening to the players, keep communicating with the league about, you know, how we see things, how they see things coming together in the middle and really putting out something that people want to watch and people want to be a part of. I think that outside of everything, forward movement and more eyes on us, you know, more attention and rightfully so, because, we, you know, outside of everything that we do, as far as, you know, being socially aware and active in our communities, we hoop. Yeah, y'all do. We play basketball. It's like, sick. so it, it's fun to watch. It is. I, yeah, I love it. <laughs> no, it's true. I, I obviously am like aware of WNBA. Like I played basketball as a kid, but this year and this season, like I've become a fan and like I watch the highlights on Instagram and stuff <laughs> and like I'm into it. It's, it's awesome. And you guys do put out a sick product. And it's like if you give the platform and you put the investment behind it, the people people are going to watch because it's it's good. It's quality. It's good entertainment. It's, cool. it's good yeah, basketball. Exactly. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So thank you. This has been so <laughs> enjoyable. I've, I've loved this conversation. We have a couple more repeat questions and then you are ready to go cool. let's do it all right second question they say work hard get lucky how much of your success is predicated on luck i don't believe in luck oh hell yeah okay, i don't let's believe hear in it. luck and i don't believe in coincidences really no wow okay so zero percent luck 100 percent hard work no i think that i think it's like 100 percent authenticity and that just comes like if you're living your truth standing in your truth and being exactly who you are Obviously, the hard work is going to come because you're going to be fueled by your passions. And then the luck becomes serendipitous and what a lot of people like to say. But like, that's not a thing. Everything happens in order as it should. You are in certain places, especially in those times when it's hard for a reason. You wouldn't be put there if you couldn't handle it. And then you're celebrated, you know, subsequently. So, yeah. Oh my God, I love that answer. <laughs> I think I just got goosebumps again. That was amazing. Oh man, I love it. All right, last question. All right. You've accomplished so much already. Where do you want to go next and how do you keep pushing? Well, one, I'm going to say I keep pushing because of the phenomenal women that I get to work with and those who, those men and women that support us along the way. And I see myself, I don't know the exact job, but I can see myself being president of organizations, specifically sports. I kind of want to stay in sports organizations and women's sports. Love it. So being a leader, having a leadership role in women's sports. Look at this. You, the little NECA that wanted to stay in her shell. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> is, is now wanting and thriving and pursuing leadership roles, which is 
pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> and so thank you. This has been incredible. Um, thank you. You're an inspiration, not just as a basketball player, but president of the WNBA Players Association. And just as a human, like how you carry yourself, your approach to life, you're just a light and an inspiration and a force for good. And do not change. Continue to be those things. Thank you for sharing your journey, your story, and being with us today. This has been so wonderful. Um, Thank you. So thanks, Mecca. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be a part of this platform because you guys are definitely leading the way in something that needs to be more mainstream. And you're definitely the trailblazers for that. So I appreciate that. And of course, it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't through a Stanford alum. So a couple of Stanford alums, shall I say. But um, shout out. Yeah, yeah, shout out to Haley. So I think that you guys are doing some awesome work and I'm really grateful to be a part of it. Well, we, yeah, you are a big part of it. And um, this has been awesome. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening. For more great sports content, go to JustWomenSports.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Our show was co-produced by Just Women Sports and Boom Integrated. Big thanks to our executive producers, Haley Rosen, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. John Murray and Sydney Shaw do our research. Production by Jen Grossman, Jeannie Montalvo, Victoria Gruenberg, Clint Rose, and Juan Garcia Ticula. Special thanks to Jesse Louie, Haley Kottmeyer, Savan Nadler, Dory Newman, Isis Haywood, and Kathleen Lumavi. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and you've been listening to the Just Women Sports Podcast. Catch you next time.